This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 29th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, Sarah Crespi is back, getting an update on the latest science stories from Emily Conover. And then we hear from Christina Larson about the potential impact of climate change on tea in China. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Emily Conover, our news intern, sitting in as editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. David Grimm should be back next week. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on humanized yeast. Yeasts are incredibly useful in the lab as a model organism, but they actually diverged from humans about one billion years ago. Well, some scientists wanted to see how alike we still are after all this time by swapping human genes for yeast genes, but not vice versa. What kinds of genes were they swapping, Emily? They looked at genes that are counterparts to human genes in yeast. So we have some genes that are quite similar between ourselves and yeast. Um, And in some of these, the amino acid sequences overlap by something like 32%. Even though yeast seem like a really primitive organism, they actually carry genes that orchestrate growth of blood vessels in humans. And in yeast, these genes help the cells respond to stress. So the researchers decided to look at about 400 genes overall, which are essential for the yeast to survive. And then what they did was they swapped out one gene at a time. So they didn't go in and and do all 100 or 400 of them at once. What did they find about how alike we are using this approach? The researchers found that 176 of those genes that they tested were actually replaceable. So the yeast could still function and could still survive after that gene had been replaced with the human version. So that's almost half of the genes that they tested, meaning that a lot of these genes are quite similar. The yeast did survive having these different genes swapped in for their own. They grew on plates. That was the determination of whether or not they survived. But were they then also super yeast because they now had these far superior human genes? <laughs> um, no, they were not. They were not. And they didn't actually test if they were super yeasts or how they competed with other yeasts. They just checked that they could actually survive. So stepping back a bit here, what is the point? I mean, it's not making a better yeast. 
it's uh, showing that there is some similarity in how the genes are used, but what, what use is this really? Well, the researchers found that when you can swap genes from humans into yeast, it turns out that a lot of a whole bunch of genes that work together can all be swapped at once. So they suggest that you could use this, you could swap a bunch of genes into yeast and then use this to study drugs or human diseases using this yeast model. Lastly, we have a story on stereotypical scientists. If I ask you to imagine a scientist, what do they look like? It turns out that even in this day and age, most people still associate the job of scientist with men. But there is some variation depending on where you live. Is this how they did the study, Emily, asking people to describe their imaginary scientists? Well, not quite. They had them take a survey. They had 350,000 people from 66 different countries take this survey where they asked them directly how strongly did they relate science to the male gender or the female gender. And they also did a test to study their implicit biases, how much sort of subconsciously they associated science with men. And how do you test implicit bias like that? They use a computer program where participants were um, asked to categorize different words that are associated with women, like mother, or with men, like uncle, with words that are associated with science or words that were associated with liberal arts. And they had to push a keyboard button to categorize these words into the different areas. And in one part of the test, they categorized women uh, using the same button as liberal arts and men using the same button as science, and then the other, they did the reverse. It tended to be easier for participants to associate women with liberal arts and men with science. They did this two-part survey with implicit and explicit measures, and they also did it across a bunch of different countries. How did people from different countries compare on these tests? Yeah, so there did turn out to be a variation between countries. The worst was the Netherlands. They associated men with science the most strongly. The United States was kind of in the middle, and the best, the ones who least strongly associated men with science were Portugal, Spain, and Mexico. But even those countries still associated men more strongly with science than women. Does this bias correlate with anything else besides? geography. What about gender equality in the culture, the actual proportion of female scientists that are there? Any of those things make any difference? There was a correlation between the percentage of female undergraduates who major in a science in a country. So in the Netherlands, only 20.2 percent of science majors are women. In Argentina, where women were more strongly associated with science, 48 percent of science majors are women. How does this make you feel? Does this, does this make you feel like things are going to change anytime soon? Is this a hopeful study or a discouraging study? Well, it depends how you look at it. If more women enter science as these attitudes change, you could see this sort of gradually improving over time. But if it's the result of few women being in science, things might stagnate. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Emily? Uh, well, we've got a story about using cell phone data to measure the number of people in crowds at large events like protests, and also a story about a way for scientists to create supersized tomatoes and other fruit. And on Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story about Japan's plan to help enlarge a massive cosmic ray detector in Utah. 
Also, we've got a story about some updates to Brazilian laws that prevent pillaging of biological resources, but also hamper scientists' research. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Sarah. Emily Conover is sitting in this week as editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, billions of people across the globe drink tea every day. As they sip away, they may not realize that the flavor and quality of the tea they're drinking is intimately connected to the climate where it was grown. Contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, Christina Larson, visited a tea-growing region of southwestern China to investigate how climate change could affect the tea grown there in the future. I'm Suzanne Bard. So, Christina, tea has been a very important crop in China for several thousand years. Tell me a little bit about the history of tea cultivation there. So, according to legend, a Chinese emperor discovered tea in about 3000 BCE when a stray leaf fell into his cup of boiled water. But botanists think that the earliest cultivation of tea, which is an evergreen plant related to the magnolia, probably began about 2,000 years ago during the Han Dynasty in a corner of China near the border with Myanmar or Burma that's now called Sichuanbana. And in the earliest years, tea was brewed actually as a medicinal drink. In part, people recognized the impacts of caffeine as a stimulant and other qualities that they associated with good health. And then as time went on, it became more considered a drink than a medicine. Interesting. So the plant itself, was it native to the region or was it imported from elsewhere? It's native to the region, but the thought, and again, this is a reconstruction, is that this is the area of the world in which people first recognized that if you picked these leaves at a certain time and cooked some and then brewed them in water, that you would have a certain quality and flavor of a drink. And depending on how you prune the trees, I think most of us are used to seeing pictures of tea trees as sort of shrubby little bushes. But if you don't prune them, they can grow to the size of a maple tree, quite a large tree. And how much of the world's tea is grown in China, and how much does tea contribute to the economy there? Well, China is the world's leading producer of tea, followed by India. Globally, our best estimates are that international tea sales are about 40 billion U.S. dollars annually. Within China, it's a bit hard to put a dollar amount on it, simply because so much of the tea trade domestically goes through avenues big and small, from tea farmers selling to neighboring tea farmers to people selling to large wholesale markets. But we know it's a very significant economic crop and also cultural crop, something that people in China associate with their long heritage. And increasingly today, Chinese people in big cities are looking for ways to reconnect with their country's history and their past and their unique culture. And so there's actually been a renaissance of tea drinking in eastern Chinese cities, which has helped drive up the price because people think of this as something that's both healthy and distinctly Chinese. You visited tea-growing regions in the Yunnan province of China. 
What is the tea known for there? I visited Sichuan Bana, which is a region at the very tip of Yunnan, a southwestern province of China. So I was in the region that's near the border with Burma. It's a tropical climate, really at the border of the East Asian monsoon and the Indian monsoon systems. So you have a dry spring and a very wet summer. And the tea that's most famous from that region is called Pur, and it's usually prepared as a fermented and semi-oxidized tea, which gives it a dark color and a bitter flavor, and then a sweet aftertaste, sort of like honey at the back of the throat. Interesting. Now, we hear about tea having health benefits, but is there good science behind these claims? Well, I might be dubious of any advertisements claiming you can lose 10 pounds in a week by drinking poor tea. But beyond that, yes, there have been some well-studied impacts and papers published in peer-reviewed journals. Catechins are a kind of antioxidant found in tea, also found in blackberries, grapes, red wines. And they've been linked in several studies to reduce risk for prostate cancer, reduce cholesterol, and other kinds of health impacts. Another class of compounds includes caffeine, which is, of course, a familiar central nervous stimulant. And how do rainfall patterns affect the quality and the chemical composition of tea leaves? So there's a research team from Tufts University and Montana State University, and in their research, they found there's a dramatic difference in the chemistry if you compare poor leaves harvested in Yunnan's dry spring season as compared to the summer monsoon season. So during the monsoon, concentrations of catechins fall to half their dry season levels. In part, that's probably due to simple dilution because leaves grow faster with more rain. It's also in part due to the absence of environmental cues present in spring that spur the plants to produce higher concentrations of secondary metabolites. And the reason this research team is comparing the two seasons and the quality or the chemistries of tea is to understand how conditions that might change with climate change, in this case precipitation, are linked to the quality of tea. So talking about climate change, does an increase in carbon dioxide affect nutrients in tea? In general, increased CO2 in the atmosphere accelerates plants' rates of growth, but that can come at the expense of lower nutritional values. And this is a real concern for crops like beans that provide protein, iron, and zinc, especially in developing countries. Last year, there was a letter published in Nature that found that protein, iron, and zinc in soybeans dropped when the soybeans were grown in elevated CO2 environments. And Christina, how have changes in local temperatures affected the onset of seasons over the past half century? And what's the impact on the resulting tea crop? Well, in the region of southwestern China that I visited, the most significant changes are precipitation. But in Assam, which is a lowland region of India famous for its black tea, summer temperatures are already hovering near the upper limit for tea plants, about 35 degrees Celsius. So there's a real concern there that further temperature increases with climate change could endanger the tea crop. Wow, that's interesting. So if it gets any hotter, they just can't grow tea. That's the worry. At a certain point, there's definitely a real concern that you might have some of those trees dying. And with regards to China and southwestern China, are there any clear predictions about how climate change might affect tea in China? 
southwestern China is at the sort of collision point between the East Asian monsoon and the Indian monsoon systems. But both of those monsoons are driven by the difference between land and sea temperatures. With climate change, land surfaces warm faster than ocean surfaces, so the gradient would increase. And one model shows that, therefore, the strength of the Asian monsoons would increase. On the other hand, what we've actually observed in recent years is a weakening of the monsoon, at least over India. And climate modelers believe that is due to the effect of increased aerosols over Asia, especially Southeast Asia. And the presence of those aerosols has the effect of diminishing the strength of the monsoon. So this is something climate models are really struggling with, whether the fact of the increasing land sea temperature gradient or increasing levels of pollution will have the most impact and how those two differences will interact in determining the future of the monsoons. So no clear prognosis about how the quality of this wonderful tea in southwestern China will be affected over time? Well, in very recent years in Yunnan, we know that temperature has gone up. We know that the summer monsoons have come later but have had more intense rain and that in some years the spring season has gotten even less rain. So that has meant that the spring season tea has actually been better because drought has some positive impacts on stimulating the production of high concentrations of these secondary metabolites we've been talking about. And the summer monsoon season has had somewhat weaker flavor. Now, there is a point of diminishing returns in that if spring season becomes too hot or too dry, that could harm the growth of the tea plants. So the scientists that I spoke to are also trying to determine what that point is in terms of both the water and the temperature sensitivity. So that's what we've observed in very recent years. But again, understanding how the pollution over Asia and the changing land sea temperature gradient will impact the future of the monsoons is a really tricky question. So I think we know that we will see changes, but whether they're consistent year to year and whether they ultimately hurt our in some seasons have some positive impact for farmers is very difficult to say. And for individual farmers, how did you see them adjusting? Well, whenever you talk about the impact of climate change on crop systems, there's often this sort of global argument that, well, perhaps if one region becomes too hot, the crops will migrate to a more northern latitude in the northern hemisphere or south in the southern hemisphere. In other words, to a slightly cooler climate. But when you look at it from the point of view of the individual farmers, of course, they don't have the option of moving the land. So they really are stuck with the land that they have. There's definitely an understanding in the region I visited that the climate is beginning to change. They talked about the impact not only on tea, but also on fruit trees. In a mountainous region like this part of southwestern China, there's also a lot of microclimates. So that's another complication for models is how the topography interacts with the weather patterns and what that means. So the farmers understand that something is changing, but there's not a great game plan going forward for what kinds of options they have to change their growing patterns. You've also addressed some other crops around the world that may be affected by climate change, like coffee, cocoa, and maple syrup. What threats are they facing? 
Well, different crops have different environmental factors that they're most sensitive to. And so, of course, climate change will change temperature, change precipitation. The increased concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, also temperature extremes, dates of growing season. So all these things are important, but they're important in different ways to different crops. Let's take coffee, for example. About 70% of the global coffee supply comes from the Arabica bean. And there's a recent report from researchers at the International Center for Tropical Agriculture in Cambodia that looked at the impact of climate change on coffee globally. And they found, especially for the Arabic beans, that in many regions, it's already growing close to its maximum temperature. And so if you project that by mid-century, the temperatures will raise between 2 and 2.5 degrees Celsius in many countries, unless allow the plant to sort of move up to a higher elevation and thus have cooler temperatures, you could lose quite a bit of the coffee plant. So in Brazil, for example, they estimated that 25% of the territory suitable for growing these plants could be lost. And so the impact for consumers like you or me is either less coffee or higher priced coffee because scarcity drives up price. To take another crop, cocoa is a key ingredient in chocolate. Drought is a real concern in parts of West Africa that cocoa is now grown, including Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. So there's a concern that with less rainfall, that that's going to raise the evapotranspiration rates in cocoa plants. So that would mean less water for the pods and thus lower yield of chocolate's main ingredient. That doesn't sound good. But climate change might spell bad news for tobacco? Interestingly, there have been studies actually at the Plant Genetics and Crop Research Institute in Germany that have found that when you grow tobacco in an elevated CO2 environment, there's actually a lesser concentration of nicotine in both the leaves and the roots. And of course, nicotine is the key secondary metabolite that makes cigarettes addictive. Fascinating. Thanks for speaking with me, Christina. Thank you. Christina Larson writes about the impact of climate change on tea and other crops this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science 
and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.